I am so incredibly thankful for this church. I am thankful that God brought us here, and I am We had a wonderful vacation, absolutely wonderful vacation. I thank you for allowing us to do that. But it is something else when you're on vacation and you realize that the last sermon you gave is the last sermon you'll ever give in that building as it stands. That was pretty unique. And then to come back and to see all the work that people had already done and the steps people had already taken to make this transition possible. Um, I was hoping we would have at least a month to plan this out. And instead, this happened in a week. I'm very thankful. And I want to thank all of you for that. Um, it's God working through us. So I want to give a hand of applause, but recognize that we're giving the applause to God for what he is doing in our church. Let's thank God for that. We've been in the book of Joshua, and as we dive into this next section of Joshua, as well as all of the things going on in our church in terms of kids' ministry, I had a different memory verse that I to today. So in your Bibles, or you can look at the screen, our memory verse for the month of August is going to be Proverbs 22.6. Let's say this together. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. What a telling verse. We invest in our children because our children are the future. And when we train up a child in the way they should go, they will not quickly, they will not soon depart from it. And that's something that we are invested in as a church. We're in the middle of the book of Joshua. If you've ever read through the middle of the book of Joshua, it's a lot like reading through the terms and conditions of a contract. Stalling on your phone. There's this city after this city after this city, and this word that we don't know, and this word that we don't know, and this place that we don't know. And pretty quick, most of you all are probably like me, where you are reading through terms and conditions, and you read like the first sentence, and then go, except. And you miss some of the nuggets in there. Actually, I was uh, talking with Chris and Karen because Chris was part of a team that just released some new software. And uh, Karen let Chris know, the only reason I'm reading this is because you're my husband. Um, it's the reality, right? We tend to skip over it. But there are these really good nuggets typed into God's word or written into God's word. And that's where we're going to be. So you can turn in your eyes to Joshua chapter 15. That's where we'll start out. But I sort of want to set the stage for you and help you to understand how we got to this point. So the first 10 chapters of the book of Joshua are narratives about the conquest, and there's details, right? We learn about the city. We learn about the inhabitants of the city, like Jericho, and we learn about Rahab, and we learn about her job, and we learn about her house being on the city wall. We learn about Joshua coming in, all this detail. And from that detail, we are supposed to slowly acquire an understanding the things that we should have learned in the first 10 chapters of Joshua are one, God's the one leading the way. It's not Joshua, it's God leading the way. And two, a, a very general principle. When Israel follows God, 
victory follows Israel. Okay? Very simple principle. When Israel follows God, victory follows Israel. And the converse is also true. When Israel fails to follow God, God course corrects Israel. God turns them back. He gives them steps to say, get back on track. So the first 10 chapters teach us this lesson over and over and over. Follow God, victory follows. Follow God, victory follows. Follow God, victory follows. Then when we read chapters 11 through 21, we're supposed to have that in the back of our mind. So that when we see Israel struggling, we wonder, where did they fail to follow God? When we see Israel successful, we ask, where have they followed God? So that's the principle. And now we dig into the little bit of harder material in chapters 15 through 17, the uh, quote-unquote terms and conditions is what I'm going to call it. So turning your Bibles to Joshua 15, we're going to start by reading in verse 13. And we're going to read verses 13 through 19 to get our first vignette, our first small story. So read with me Joshua chapter 15, starting in verse 13. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahinam, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb gave him his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me the land in the Negev, Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. So caught in the middle of all of these city names is this short vignette, this short story, this short piece of information. You see, Joshua 15 is all about the allotment of land for the tribe of Judah. And so if you look at like verse 1, it says, the allotment for the tribe of Judah according to its clans, and then it lists a bunch of city names. And what you're supposed to do is get out a map and draw a line between all of these cities. And there's your border for Judah. We're not going to do that today. But that's the context. And then in the middle of that, there's this nugget of Caleb. And what we see is that Caleb's obedience was contagious. Back in May, we learned about Caleb. We talked about Caleb's possession of the promise. That Caleb after being a spy, was told, you will get to enter the land of Canaan, and you will receive land. You'll receive the land that you had spied out. And in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb was given that land. But now the time has come to conquer that land. And so what I want to point out to you is Caleb's obedience. He followed it. He obeyed fully, and his obedience was contagious. Why? What was it about Caleb's obedience that was contagious? Well, first, I want you to see that contagious obedience recognizes that God is bigger than giants. 
Contagious obedience recognizes God is bigger than even the giants. Verses 13 through 15 really address this. They really hone in because we learn that the people who inhabited Caleb's land of promise were the sons of Anak. So that's one of those words you read over it and think, okay, moving on. But there's a nugget there. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 2, we learn something about the sons of Anak. The Anakites were big men. They were giants. That's how they're described. The sons of Anak were not your normal, everyday foot soldiers. These were your heroes. They were the sort of people that you send out in the front lines because they're so big, everybody else will follow them because they think that person can't possibly lose. They were the sort of people that everybody would get behind because that person can't be beat. Those are the people that Caleb's up against. But contagious obedience recognizes God is bigger than giants. And Caleb is going to do this conquest. But contagious obedience also recognizes that discipleship, which is the transmission vector for the contagion, discipleship involves sharing both the challenges and the rewards. Discipleship is the way we transmit this contagion called obedience. Look what Caleb does in verses 16 through 20. Caleb doesn't just go conquer these giants. No, he makes an offer. He says, I'm looking for somebody to come alongside me. I'm also sort of looking for a husband for my daughter. And he comes up with a pretty good strategy. He says, since I need someone to disciple and I need a husband for my daughter, let's sort of connect these two together. And the person who's willing to come along with me, they'll be good enough to marry my daughter. So um, I enjoy talking with Angel and Vanessa and Zuri, and Zuri likes to tell me that her dad has some conditions under which he's willing to marry off his daughter. So the first condition is that the man who marries Zuri needs to know the Bible better than Pastor Angel. The second condition is that the man who marries Zuri needs to be able to beat Pastor Angel in a wrestling ring. Caleb sets up something similar to this. He says, I will give my daughter in marriage to the person who captures Kiriath Sefer, to the person who is willing to be, my, to be a disciple with me, willing to follow me into battle. I will give my daughter. And in fact, the person who does it is Othniel. Uh, we're told in the scripture that Othniel is, our translation in our NIV says, Othniel was Caleb's brother. Um, some translations will say nephew. The Hebrew word is at, which means close relative. It could be a brother, it could be a nephew, it could be a cousin. We don't know all the details. Um, someone that was related in some way to Caleb, Othniel, determines that he is going to win this woman in marriage. And so he goes with Caleb. And he wins. He gets the victory. But I want you to remember in this, who was Caleb? He was the mighty warrior. He was the one who could conquer. God had already promised it to him. 
Caleb did not need Othniel. He chose to share his rewards, his victories. He chose to bring somebody alongside him. Contagious obedience, the sort of obedience we need to have, an action step. Invite somebody to share in your challenges and your victories. Think through, take a minute, and just think. Who might God lead you to share in this stage of life? It's interesting that we're in here today because we're all a lot closer together. We have the opportunity to think. Who might God ask me as we go through this transition? Who can God have me share this with? Who might God want me to take out for coffee and ask them how they're doing in their Bible reading, in their prayer life? Who might God want me to pray with, to teach how to pray? How many of you have ever been taught by somebody older how to pray about something? Or do you just sort of guess as you go? God might be calling you to disciple someone. Caleb brought Othniel along. His obedience was contagious because he was willing to disciple somebody else. That's our first vignette in 15 through 17. Our second one's still going to be in chapter um, 15. It's going to start in verse 63. Actually, we're going to jump around a little bit because there's several little stories or little tags really at the end of this. But turn in your Bibles to Joshua 15, verse 63, for just a minute. So Joshua 15, verse 63, it's a kind of a sad statement. Remember what's going on in chapter 15. It's the allotment of cities for Judah. We're drawing the line on the map, connecting all of the dots together so we can see where Judah's territory is. And then look at how this chapter ends in verse 63 says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. What we're going to see is that Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh had partial obedience, and their partial obedience caused problems for generations to come. Partial obedience in contrast to Caleb's obedience. Partial obedience, let me say that again, partial obedience causes problems for generations to come. The first one that we saw there was in 1563, and that was incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience that allowed sin to fester for generations. Judah, despite all the victories, there's over 100 cities listed in chapter 15. Over 100 victories that Judah had. They failed in one place, Jerusalem. They failed to dislodge the Jebusites. And the people of Jerusalem were foreigners, foreign to God, did not know God. They caused problems for generations to come. In fact, several hundred years later, David, King David in 2 Samuel, had to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem because they were still there. Even much later, another 400 years later, Ezra, actually more than 400 years later, Ezra, the priest, spoke about the Jebusite problem in Jerusalem. 
It wasn't just for one or two generations. Judah's failure to drive out the Jebusites, to fully obey God, caused problems for centuries for Israel to deal with. Joshua chapter 16 is about the allotment of land for the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Another set of tribes. That's what Joshua 16 covers. And Joshua 16, just like Joshua 15, has a foreboding note. Look at verse 10 in Joshua chapter 16. Joshua 16 verse 10 says, However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites had lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but had been made to do forced labor. Just like Judah, just like Judah, incomplete obedience led to compromise in Joseph's line. Manasseh was of the line of Joseph. Same thing in Joshua 17, verses 12 and 13. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Time and time again, what we see is incomplete obedience. Contrast this. Caleb completely obeyed conquered the Anakites, drove them out. Judah failed to drive out of Jerusalem. Manasseh failed to drive out. Ephraim failed to drive out. Ephraim and Manasseh were both Joseph's sons. They were his two sons, so that's why I call it Joseph's line. Failure to drive them out caused problems for generations to come. Why do I say this? Because by the time we get to Judges, chapters 1 and 2, if you look at briefly at Judges 1 and 2, what you will see is Canaanites living amongst the people. Canaanites causing problems among the people. And if you look carefully at Judges 2 chapters, sorry, Judges 2 verses 10 through 12, let me turn there. I want to read to you what this says. It says, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Incomplete obedience caused problems for generations to come. We're talking about Ephraim and Manasseh here, starting in verse 14. Verses 14 says, The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves. There, in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites, the people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots filled with iron. Both those in Beth Shan and its settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forest hill country as well. Clear it, and its furthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. What happens here? After 
verse 12, where they fail to drive out the people, the Manassites have the gall to go up to Joseph and say, we don't have enough land. Look how big we are. Look how many people we have. You haven't given us enough. And Joseph wisely, or sorry, Joshua wisely says, go finish what you started. Go back to work. Get it done. You've only partially obeyed. Stop complaining and start obeying. Do what you were told to do. You have the power. You just said you're a numerous people, so you shouldn't have a problem taking this land. Partial obedience led to discontentment. I think oftentimes in our life, discontentment is sourced in our partial obedience. When we fail to obey completely, it leads us to discontentment. I'm reminded of a general principle where one generation compromises, the next generation fails. Partial obedience leads to a multitude of problems. So let me give you an action step. Take a minute and ask yourself, where have I only partially obeyed? Where in my life have I only partially obeyed what God's calling me to do? And how can I fully obey? As I was thinking about this this morning, this challenge of partial obedience, I was thinking about the remodel of the church. We are right in the midst of some huge victories. God has blessed our church. Let's not stop at partial obedience. Let's fully obey. We have the opportunity to give. We have the opportunity to celebrate. It's exciting. Let's not let the excitement wane where we don't finish well. That's the problem that the tribes of Israel had there. They started well. Judah had a hundred cities that they conquered, but they didn't finish well. And it cost them. Let's finish well. We're in the midst of this. Let's determine today to finish well. One more vignette for you. We're going to go to chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 6 for our last vignette. Let's read it together, and then I will try to help us interpret it. So Joshua 17, starting in verse 3. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of the daughters. Malah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. Aren't you thankful your dads didn't give you those names? <laughs> they approached Eliezer the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. There fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is in the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons, the land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. What I want you to see here is that Eliezer and Joshua's countercultural obedience set a precedent. Let me give you some background. A man typically would pass his property and money on to 
his male children when he died. That was the typical way that things were done. That was the pretty much the only way things were done. When you died, you passed it on to your male children. And the oldest male child received twice as much, and the rest of the children received evenly divided out. That was the rules of inheritance. So, as they're wandering in the desert, a particular man died who had no sons. He had only daughters. And the daughters came to Moses and said, we have a, a conundrum here. The land that has been promised to our father's line is there's nobody to inherit it. So it's going to go away. It's going to go to somebody else outside of our father's line. And essentially, our father's line will be cut off. It will cease to exist because the land will be no more. The cultural way of handling this is to say too bad. Like, that's, that's tough luck. Sorry your dad didn't have a son. Moving on. That's not God's way. God told Moses, no, you know, they deserve land. And so now we're in the promised land. Fast forward, not quite 40 years at this point. Fast forward, and we've got these women, and they come to Eliezer and Joshua, and they say, it's time. It is time. And this obedience would have run counter to prevailing culture. For Eliezer and Joshua to follow this, would run counter to prevailing culture. You see, sometimes obedience follow, does not follow culture. Sometimes obedience runs contrary to prevailing culture. And that's hard. But that is what God demands, is that we obey him and not our culture. So Joshua and Eliezer follow it. And it does a lot of things. One, it gives these women an inheritance but two, it changes the rules of inheritance all the way across the board. You see, countercultural obedience can present, countercultural obedience in the present can make a positive difference in the future. If we obey now, even if it goes against our culture, it can change the future. It can fix problems going forward. And that's what happens in this passage. The other thing I am struck by is that these women actually ask Joshua. You may need to personally boldly ask others to be obedient. You may look around and you may think, we're not being obedient here. God's asked us for this. We need to be obedient. My challenge to you, if you see where we're not being obedient, ask. Talk to us. So let me give you here a mini action step. We're in the midst of transition. If you see something that doesn't seem right, come and talk to me. It may be that, that it, it's what we have to do for various reasons. But if you see something that doesn't seem right, come and tell me. Don't just hold it in or don't just go tell somebody else, I can't believe they're doing that. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. No, come tell me. Countercultural obedience challenges others to obedience. We want to do it right. Let me give you my first sort of application of this. Um, driving back, one of the, my uncle was texting me, and one of the things that I was thinking about was my grandfather, 
who, who is no longer alive. Um, back in 1946, in England, right after World War II, he heard God's call on his life. And so he flew to the United States. Actually, no, he wrote, wrote a ship to the United States. Went to Moody Bible College. My uncle tells me that uh, two years before my grandpa died, he was talking about health insurance. And my uncle asked my grandpa, uh, or life insurance, do you have life insurance? And my grandpa said, no. And my uncle said, you've always struck me as a very wise man. How do you not have life insurance? And my grandpa's response was, well, in 1946, when we went to Brazil, we never intended to live more than three years. Because God's call was that we go. And missionaries were dying, and we assumed we wouldn't make it. So we didn't buy life insurance, because it was never going to pay out for us. His obedience, though, led to my dad, which led to me, which led to salvation in Emily's family. His obedience had effects for generations to come. It was countercultural. World War II was over. He was free to spend the rest of his time in England where he was from. But God's call said leave, and he did. And it led to massive effects for generations to come. So give me the full action step. Evaluate your personal obedience and ask yourself the question, where do I need to be counter-cultural? How can I obey in a way that is counter-cultural if that's what God's calling me to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Joshua. I thank you that you gave the words of Joshua to us, that we can see through the book of Joshua the ways in which obedience leads to results. But partial obedience, Lord, had devastating effects for generations to come. So I pray today that you would help us as individuals, as a church, to not be partially obedient, but rather to engage in full obedience, following you wherever you would ask us to go whether that be something that is consistent with culture or whether that be countercultural, Lord, we serve you. Before the sermon, we sang, here I am, Lord, send me. Lord, we submit ourselves to you in obedience. And I pray that we would be a church known by your name because we're obedient to you. That may mean obedience and confession of sin today. Obedience in accepting a call to serve you today. Or it may mean obedience in some area of our life that we've just never turned over to you. Draw us to be fully obedient. To leave no pocket of sin undealt with. In Jesus' name, amen.